Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, the great detective Sherlock Holmes. Is he smart? Well, listen, boo, he's 100% smarter than you. Look out, here comes Sherlock Holmes, do, 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 <laughs> in old London town with his friend Dr. John. He takes criminals down and smokes a pipe when he's done. Look out, here comes Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> That intro that we will use every episode that I wrote in the shower this morning. <laughs> Welcome back to a study <laughs> Good, good. Welcome back to a study granada. I am Mike Knoll, your host, who is a fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes stories and the 1980s Granada series starring Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick. And I am joined, as always, by my friend Jackson Eflin. Hi, I'm Jackson, and I am in that novice place. <laughs> That's my favorite John Krasinski movie. Wow, you're right. <laughs> this week we are covering The Second Stain. It's raining again? It's apparently just always raining if we're recording things. Sorry about that. It can't rain all the time. It's atmospheric. It is. It's a very dire episode as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson attempt to forestall World War One. Yeah. Seemingly. Pretty much. So we'll jump right into it. When did this come out, actually? I saw, uh, I was looking up a thing for this with some research, and I think 1904. Okay, so we're like on the verge of World War One, but not quite there. I think it's becoming clear to a lot of people that something's going to happen, and it's going to lead to like a great war. Because the way he writes about this, and we can get into this, but it seems like he's basically like, not to crib the quote from the extraordinary gentleman, but nations are striking at nations, it's like a powder keg. Mm. Um, the second state episode unfolds against an interesting historical background, the interplay of alliances, mainspring of the European policies during the 19th century. Holmes' mission consists in no less than spare the... Wow! <laughs> Holmes' mission consists in no less than spare the British Empire an expensive and bloody war, and its monumentous importance is emphasized by Elgar's number one march and John Bruce's majestic pictures. <laughs> of course, to a certain extent, the case fades away. Finally... <laughs> is this even a synopsis? Don't know. This is a back of the DVD pitch. Yeah, this is like a review of the performance. <laughs> yeah, this is where the synopsis usually lives on the um, Conan Doyle wiki that we pull synopses from. So <laughs> this this is a worse. This synopsis. isn't a synopsis. <laughs> this is just this is a review. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? <laughs> so I guess we're gonna improvise that synopsis this time. Can we go to like Wikipedia or something? We can try. Lord Bellringer, a former Prime Minister and Trelawney Hope, Secretary for the European Affairs, show up Baker Street about a case they want neither the police nor the public to be aware of. A critically important letter from a foreign potentate, which Hope had been keeping in his personal safe, has disappeared. Holmes knows of three international secret agents who would be interested in obtaining his doctor, Oberstein, La Raffiere, and Eduardo Lucas. He therefore intends to question them, but learns that Lucas has been murdered in his home. Meanwhile, Lady Hilda, Hope's wife, visits Holmes and begs him to reveal to her the contents of the letter. Holmes, who promised to officials he would keep the secret, refuses, which leaves Lady Hilda desperate. I want to take a quick second oh, and sure. apologize to the Arthur Conan Doyle wiki. It wasn't that they didn't post a synopsis, it's that Jackson copy and pasted the wrong section <laughs> into our, our Google Drive. Oh, did I? <laughs> Whoopsies! Oh, hey, I found the synopsis! Very luckily for us, this script was basically written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle a hundred years before they the They chopped out all the dialogue and just added, like, scene description yep, and pretty much. some action bits. All right. 
um, and ignores the description of what the Prime Minister is supposed to look like. Yeah, the only difference between what we read in the actual episode is that it goes the meeting with the government, then Lady Hilda, then the discovery in the newspaper, as opposed to the other way around. That difference being pretty important. To kind of summarize, a paper's gone missing, the government's in a tizzy because it might start start World War One if it's not found, and the minister's wife is involved somehow, mysteriously. We're not sure how yet, but Holmes knows only three people could be responsible, and one of them is dead, so he's probably involved somehow. Yeah, um, so I want to start at the very beginning of the story. Watson mentions, rather, that um, he had intended the Abbey Grange to be the last Sherlock Holmes story that he would publish, mostly because Holmes desired that to be because he had retired to Sussex to be a, a bee farmer, um, a beekeeper, yeah. you know, the way everyone else in the world says <laughs> it. And how Holmes basically decided that as a detective, the fame of the stories was a boon to his work. While as a quiet beekeeper in Sussex, people would, you know, come up to him and try to talk to him about the stories. He didn't want to be famous anymore. And so Watson has published this one because he had promised that he would publish it after a certain amount of time. Like once the events of the story were no longer scandalous, I guess. Right. Which he is, could publish it. And that's a conceit for a lot of these. That like yeah. he posted things only after like everyone involved is dead or fully married. Yeah, off the top of my head, definitely the Speckled Band mm-hmm. because the main character whose name was skipping my mind, again, a, a phrase everyone says, <laughs> has died. <laughs> So he feels like he can publish the story. I assume that Abbey Grange is written several years after the events. Yeah, yeah. I think that these are not published immediately after. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them maybe. So I did some research into this, and the last Sherlock Holmes story ever published was The Adventure of Shoscombe Old Place. The second stain was actually published as the last story in The Return of Sherlock Holmes, which is the third volume of stories. They go Adventure of Sherlock Holmes, The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, and then The Return of Sherlock Holmes. Mm, So the last story of The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes is The Final Problem. And then we come back with The Return with The Empty House and all of these. So this wasn't even the last Sherlock Holmes story ever published. So it's kind of interesting. I think this is maybe Doyle putting forth the idea of he's not practicing anymore. These are just the cases that I've had in a trunk yeah. That I haven't gotten to yet. These are my old notes. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought I lost all the notes, but I found them when I was cleaning out the... The gutters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's where I keep my secret notes. Anyway, that's just... I wanted to touch on that at the very beginning, because he does mention, like, oh, yeah, I intended... What are you doing? What are you writing? Oh, Shoscombe Old Place is oh, the yeah. name of the next sheriff of a sleepy town in a D&D village that I'm going to use. Shoscombe Old Place. That's a good name, yeah. Right? There's and, another Shoscombe story called Boscombe Valley. No, actually, we'll cover both of those, I think... Next season, mm, I think sweet. we're going to cover both of those. So, as you might have noticed, this is remarkably similar to the Naval Treaty. Yeah, it's government officials show up, hey, we lost this very important document that could definitely lead to a big war, and we don't know where it is. Can you find it? Mm-hmm. But unlike the Naval Treaty, things happen in it. Yeah, honestly, you texted me after watching the episode that this felt like the Naval Treaty, but with energy. And I would argue it feels like the Naval Treaty if someone gave a shit. Mm, yeah. Because there's intrigue and there are stakes. Like, we talked in the Naval Treaty about the kind of lack of stakes. Like, it didn't feel like a big deal. You, I think, famously weren't entirely sure what was going to happen. Like, why it was important that this document is found. In the Naval Treaty, it had been some weeks since it was stolen. And the question was, huh, why hasn't anything come of that? That's weird. Whereas here, it's like, 
any hour could be when World War One starts, mm-hmm. and it's the fact that it hasn't yet is making everyone on edge. And you can tell it through the episode that people are more and more stressed. It's really cool. And they did a good bit about kind of the almost futility of this case. You think that if this document is not recovered, there will be war? I think it is very probable. Then, sir, prepare for war. That is a hard saying, Mr. Holmes. Consider the facts. There seems no doubt this document was taken between half past seven and half past eleven yesterday evening, so where can it be now? No one has any reason to retain it. It has been passed from hand to hand rapidly. To those who need it and who will pay well for it. What chance do we have to overtake it or even trace it? It is beyond our reach. Has anyone done, like, Sherlock Holmes during the war years as a thing? That sounds really fun, actually. We get maybe a a canonical thing from Watson, but that could still be just him publishing old stories. Sure. So I don't know. Right, I think there wouldn't be any, like, canon ones, but I know if there's a movie or a short story or whatever someone wrote. That's an adventure we'll have together, finding out if there are World War I (laughs) Sherlock Holmes stories. The adventure of the World War I stories. (laughs) But yeah, uh, this has a lot of the kind of similar plot beats where you're trying to figure out, like, where's the letter, who took it, who could have known, all that kind of thing. But there's more intrigue and there are more potential people involved in the narrative. And a lot of questions are put forward that you can tell that they all matter. It's not sure how they're all going to fit together. And it's really kind of fun. And there's a great bit in this that ties into what we've talked about before, definitely with Crooked Man. Holmes not really having time for people covering for each other mm. slash like the sensibilities of the time. He's, he basically straight up asks, what's in the letter? And uh, Trelawney hopes about to tell him and the prime minister basically gives him a physical description of the letter and it's like that's going to be fine and also is like great what's in the letter mm-hmm. and they won't tell him so he goes you are two of the most busy men in the country and in my own small way I have a good many calls upon me and basically plays chicken with the prime minister of England over world war one <laughs> Which is pretty ballsy. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. The Prime Minister then agrees Holmes is right. Like, it's unreasonable. Because if he doesn't know what the letter's about, how's he going to know what suspects to look for? Right. Because he knows more about what it is, he knows who to look for. Right. And I just love the fact that Sherlock Holmes, smoking a pipe, plays chicken with the Prime Minister of England over World War One, And wins. Oh, yeah, he wins. Yeah. I will say, until you mentioned it, I didn't realize that knowing the contents were what helped him narrow it down. I thought he just knew the spies so well that he was like... Here's who's free right now. Here's who wasn't busy at the opera during this thing. My take was that if it was, like, depending on the importance, there are different circles of suspects to look through. Once he knew what the letter was, which was, I guess, a foreign diplomat, leader, sovereign. Something about colonialism? wrote some letters about how mad they were about colonialism, and that might lead to World War One. They're very unclear about the contents. Right. Which is similar to the Naval Treaty. The Naval Treaty is a little more like, oh yeah, it's basically uh, the treaty of what we're, where we're going to put ships and responses to this or that. Right. Like, it's a more practical description. This is more of like a vague, it's kind of Scandal Bohemia of, yeah, there are some indelicate letters. Yeah. Along with a picture of us. Right. They kind of hand wave like, this is bad and you need to find it. So in the story, Watson talks about how he's blurred some things for people's discretion, which fair enough. I assume that in the, in the real world of the story, Holmes actually knows more or less exactly what's in that letter, yeah. but Watson kind of just yada 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 through it, which fair enough. Oh yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, he's not publishing this until it's not scandalous anyway. And again, we've had Holmes accuse Watson of leaving things out of the story to make them better narratives mm-hmm. and more exciting. And so the idea of Watson 
changing the names of parties involved for their safety and honor doesn't strike me as odd. Oh no, not at all. And I think the vagueness of the letter works for the story because it just it makes it this bigger, more interesting threat that like yeah. it's the the great unknown that we it's, never find out about. It's vague enough that it's still interesting, but we're not mired in like, oh yes, it was the Spanish right to this person and has this kind of domain. It's just, hey, a foreign power wrote this very ill-advised letter. And it is this letter which may well mean the expenditure of a thousand million pounds and the lives of a hundred thousand men. There is one thing I want to talk about because we're in this section. Sure. And that is, we've touched on it, and I called it line theft before mm. of Watson. And regardless of the apocrypha, the story, you know, whatever that we've talked about, Watson has been getting a lot of Holmes' line. And actually, there is an element here that I like. Mm-hmm. And that is, while they're questioning the Prime Minister and Trelawney Hope, Watson is actually asking some good and poignant questions. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good use of Watson taking some lines is during the Q&A, if you will, with right. the clients, actually asking some relevant questions of them. And also Holmes then can just absorb answers and not really have to engage. Like he can let everything kind of rattle around while he's theorizing, making bricks out of clay. Nice. I like that as Watson taking some of the load off of Holmes's part. Right. And that part where in previous episodes where he's made some deductions or taken some of the smarter Holmes lines he said them, I'm still iffy on. I think here they did a good job of delegating some of the question and answer to Watson. Mm -hmm. And these are all kind of fairly straightforward questions you would ask for any case, like who could have been there, when did you leave, who was in the house, that kind of stuff, which almost always apply and almost always provide some kind of data, even if that data winds up not being useful. Exactly. That's a good way to give Watson Holmes lines without making Watson way smarter than Watson is right and just overly useful in any given office you probably have a secretary who's really good at that part of the job they're not necessarily going to be the ceo and they're not mm-hmm. supposed to be the ceo watson should be an increasingly competent secretary for sherlock holmes yeah or i'd say partner watson being the social face of the duo along with being decent at the mystery stuff i think that's where the david burke seasons were really good was watson was more the people person yeah and the, like, you know, you weren't very sympathetic. Well, he doesn't come from me, come to me for sympathy. Watson's kind of there to be the sympathetic one. And while getting better at solving mysteries, the mystery-solving aspect really isn't Watson's job. One more thing, because last week I think we talked about how this season hasn't given us, us much of Holmes and Watson, the domestic aspect. Mm-hmm. And I like that the episode starts with Mrs. Hudson and Watson hastily cleaning the apartment and yeah. Holmes just sitting there with his hand on this cane, clutching it like, this is the greatest case of my career and I must send her my chi. He's listening to Eye of the Tiger on headphones, just psyching himself up to solve a mystery. Sorry, gramophone. Sidebar, I have a point about tigers later, so thanks for setting me up for that. Um, we also need to talk about our first meeting with, wow, so much, Mrs. Trelawney Hope. Yeah, Mrs. Mrs. Yes. <laughs> Who, we're all put on Twitter or whatever, and in the like episode title card, she enters with the most amazing outfit. I want that outfit. It looks so good. Kind of got like almost like a suit jacket type of thing that turns into a dress, but the suit jacket lapels have these spirals that come down from the collar. It's a gray with just a tiny hint of a purplish blue, and I love it so much. Yeah, we'll definitely put a picture with the episode tweet. So follow us on Twitter at in underscore Granada. 
But unfortunately, this part also, apart from, you know, like, Lady Trelawney, she's, you know, she's great, but it gives us Holmes being like... And yet the motives of women are so inscrutable. I mean, how can you build on such a quicksand? I'm torn because we have at the end of Scandal Bohemia, they're like, I used to hear him sneer much at the cleverness of women, blah, blah, blah. And now it's, but he hasn't done it recently. And he's kind of back to sneering at women a little bit. Well, I think now it's like the opposite. Like it's gone from women have no wit to women are inscrutable beasts that I can't understand. He's got, he's got a full 180 on it, unfortunately. So Mrs. shows up and uh, basically says, I know my husband was here. I need you to tell me why. I know something was stolen and it's bad, but I need you to tell me everything. Mm-hmm. And to his credit, Holmes is like, well, I can't because, you know, client confidentiality. And she's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. Just tell me. Well, no, I can't. So I'm not gonna. (laughs) And she's like clearly not down with that, but is trying her best to maintain her composure. Mm -hmm. And after she leaves, Holmes is even more intrigued with this case now. Because like... And you observed, of course, how she maneuvered to have her back to the light. She did not wish us to read her expression too closely. Yeah, she chose that chair in the whole room. It's one of those things about a Sherlock Holmes case I like where they present the mystery and it's kind of interesting you know it's oh this is interesting and then a person just shows up speckled band is similar where she comes in and she talks to him and then she leaves and then grimmy shows up and is like don't come to my house stay out of it and then leaves and holmes is like okay this mystery rules (laughs) and it's a similar thing of like they show up they have this... Di- He's like, I'll see what I can do, but it's probably hopeless. And then the wife of the guy shows up and is like, I need you to tell me right now what's going on. Mm-hmm. And he won't. And then he's like, okay, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because, like... When he's saying it's hopeless, he's saying like there's like there's been too much time and it could have gone anywhere. But now he's like, okay, I have more data points. I can start narrowing it down. And it's kind of what the naval treaty needed. The naval some kind of thing, some sort of like a grenade and lemonade. <laughs> you know, I coined that phrase and you've used it more times than I have. Sorry, it means it, no, no. I'm not mad. Don't we're not we're not cutting that take. <laughs> I'm just saying, it boggles my mind that I invented that expression and you have used it more times than I have. Now. It is so useful. Holmes is about to go Holmesing when Watson is like, oh, hey, by the way, what was the name of one of those guys that he said was probably in on it? Yeah, he's dead now. <laughs> and well, he calls it a coincidence, which, what are you doing, Watson? Okay, but here's the thing. Spoilers for, you know, the next 10 yeah. minutes of this episode. It is a coincidence. And I love that. <laughs> I love it. Just as a meta idea of you work with Sherlock Holmes. He named three dudes who could be part of this very high-profile political intrigue mystery. One of them shows up dead the next day. And you're like, yeah, that's probably coincidence. Which I love that it turns out to be entirely a coincidence. Kind of. I mean, and we'll get to that. But I do love it. Like, I just, it boggles my mind (laughs) that Watson's like, yeah, that's probably just not at all relevant. Just in case it is interesting to you at all. But yeah, I think we're finally ready to move on with the plot. Sorry, hope you're all keeping track. A few days later, the press reveals that Lucas led a double life and shared his time between London and Paris, where he was called Henry Fournier and was married to a very jealous woman. She'd been seen around Lucas's home the night he was murdered and is naturally suspected. Lestrade asks Holmes to come to Lucas's home to see something that puzzles the inspector. The blood stain on the carpet and the one on the floor don't match. The carpet has then been turned round after the murder. Okay. The carpet has then been turned after the murder, which Holmes points out means the constable must have let someone came into the house. 
Well, Strait interviews the constable Holmes inspects the floor and finds an empty box in a cavity under the floor. He returns it to its hiding place before Lestrade re-enters the room with the constable, who confesses that he left a young woman alone a little while in the room. Mm. And so now there's a murder on top of all of this. And Lestrade has this kind of fun bit where he talks about how, oh, it's a pretty standard murder. We figured out who it was. Nothing of interest to you. But I guess while you're here, you could look at this weird thing that, you know, we are sure is trivial, but you like weird stuff. Here, look at this weird stain. Well, and here's the thing. In the story... Lestrade sends for home. Similar idea of like, we solved it. This is just weird. And we know you like weird. So like, what do you think? Yeah. And in the show, they're kind of hovering around Godolphin Street, which is one, a great name. Yes. Two, that's where Lucas lived. And Lestrade sees them and is like, like you said, oh, hey, while you're here, we solved it, whatever. This is kind of weird. Do you want to come look at it? Mm-hmm. And I think I really like a good little bit to kind of that creates continuity for the show mm-hmm. is that Watson says I've become good friends with Lestrade can I talk to him which mm-hmm. you know is a really good bit to tie, tie into how he was like working with Lestrade a lot for yeah. the during the dead Holmes years oh and this does also have a very good bit with Lestrade where Holmes is here to investigate this mystery and Lestrade is like and we found and he like pauses and Holmes like yes you'll never guess what we found and Holmes has his look like he's about to just turn into a tiger and maul Lestrade <laughs> the answer it's like yeah, I'm just waiting for him to get up and just beat, like, straight about the face <laughs> until he tells him. It's... That's the thing I like about this episode, is he's trying to work with Lestrade a little bit, mm-hmm. but he can't tell Lestrade anything. So Lestrade's fucking around, like, I bet you'll never guess mm-hmm. what's what, what we found. And Holmes is like, Jesus Christ, man. The World War One. okay? <laughs> just fucking tell me. Okay, in the hypothetical, like... Holmes during the war years thing that we could look mm-hmm. into at some point. Lestrade did World War One is exactly a, a plot point I'm going to introduce. I love the idea that Lestrade trying to fuck with Holmes a little bit. Like, like, yeah, you you know what? You found that secret room in the Norwood Builder. Guess what I found <laughs> leads to World War One. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I want to touch in real quick. Watson and women? Oh, yeah. Just, we've had this a number of times. We haven't really touched on it. But the amount of times a female client comes in and Watson talks about how beautiful they are is every time. Yes. And it's just an interesting point, especially, at least in the stories, Watson was married. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying, like, oh, he's married, so he shouldn't see other women as beautiful or whatever. It's just this weird thing of, like, Watson and the ladies. And Holmes even mentions at one point... The fair sex is your department, Watson. We could get into another 40-minute episode of whether or not that's, like, a ace, arrow, possibly gay, whatever. Mm -hmm. Subtext, if that's just Holmes doesn't have time, really, for that kind of thing. I mean, there are a variety of takes for that that we're not going to get into now. Because, like I said, that could be a 40-minute episode. Mm -hmm. But... um, I think that if you wanted to do a, like, queer reading of Holmes, this would be definitely an episode to, like, dig into for that. Mm-hmm. Holmes does a thing where he, like, tells Lestrade to go out and talk to this constable, and and kind of, Lestrade just charges off to Paladin, this guy. Look, Sir Osric, an evildoer outside! What? And Holmes just drops to the ground. I love it. Yeah, and, like, he starts, like, 
spidering across the floor with his hands because he's like, okay, secret compartment. Probably a secret compartment somewhere under this rug. Just checking all the floorboards while Watson's like looking out the window. Yeah, and that's a great bit is Watson immediately moves to be lookout. Like, that's Without a great told. partnership. Yeah, yeah, he knows. He knows to just go to be lookout while Holmes is like, is he say spidering across the floor checking for hidden compartments? Like, Watson doesn't drop down to help. And like, he moves to keep an eye on Lestrade so that they have warning. And like, that's a good Holmes and Watson bit. That is a good partnership beat. We don't have to be, Watson, keep a lookout, whatever. He knows, okay, I'm lookout, go. That was a really good bit. I agree. Like, I really like that section. And then Holmes finds the secret compartment, finds it empty. So like, okay, cool. Like, he's frustrated, but he also knows that, that therefore, it presumably might have been in here recently and has now been moved. And he's able to figure out, okay, probably the lady who fainted has something to do with that. Well, yeah, he doesn't know what the lady who fainted. But like, oh, right, yeah. the fact that he's figured out, I mean, everybody's figured out that the, the whatever, the carpet and table were rotated. Hmm. And that meant to hide something. And so he figured somebody had been in there. And it's the, you know, the steps of deduction that we don't really get, like, let into. Like, he kind of, at the end, doesn't, you have to kind of surmise backwards. Right. Yeah, um, the constable comes in and tells us some woman came here on accident for to answer a typing thing or something, and she got talking, and he was like, oh, sure, let me show you this room yeah, where the murder happened. This lady showed up for a typing interview, and was like, while I'm here, I heard about the murder. Could I just look at the scene? It's like, yeah, come on in. You know. You're not late for an interview or anything. She was answering an advertisement looking for redheaded women who were interested <laughs> in a, a typing job. Uh, <laughs> While she's fainting, he's rushing off to find the... He goes to, like, the pharmacy to get smelling salt or something. Yeah. Like, it's wild that he just, like, leaves the house. Yeah, that constable's super fired. And so, yeah, Lestrade mentions that... Lucky for you, my man, that nothing's missing. Otherwise, you'd find yourself in Queer Street. And I looked this up, and Queer Street is a colloquial term referring to a person being in some difficulty, most commonly financial. Mm. It is often associated with Carey Street, where London's bankruptcy courts were once located. Mm, so sure. basically, you're lucky you're not fired. Yeah. And so then my favorite part of that whole bit is as they're leaving, Holmes just stops, shows that constable a picture, and he goes, Mr. Holmes, like, w- magician, how did you do that? <laughs> we don't see what the picture is, but we will later to learn it's a picture of... Mrs. <gasps> Twist. Which... I think we're kind of led to believe that. When he shows them the picture, I think we're supposed to surmise. Yeah, well, I mean, partially because, you know, that makes sense. That, that explains her involvement, mm-hmm. but also because Doyle doesn't write more than one woman in his narrative. So I mean, he did in this one. The wife. Yeah. Who'd done the murder. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It's twist. Yeah. Um, dun, dun, dun! Yeah. Twist, there was a second woman in this narrative. <laughs> the adventure of the second woman. Oh, wow. I'm really surprised that's not a mystery somehow. Yeah. Let's just ro- knock out the rest of the synopsis so we can talk big picture. Yeah. Holmes goes to see Lady Hilda and enjoins her to hand the stolen letter over to him. In the episode, she plays false with him, says she knows nothing. She does in the story as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she plays false, doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and then they play chicken with geopolitics again. Eventually, with moments left before her husband returns, she bursts into tears and explains that Eduardo Lucas was blackmailing her and demanded she gives him the letter and demanded she give him the letter she knew Hope was hiding. Owning a key to the safe, she complied, but saw where the scoundrel hid the letter. When she heard he'd been murdered, she rushed to Lucas's house and tricked the constable in order to get the document back. So, yeah, she was the lady who fainted. Holmes helped Lady Hilda by replacing the letter and convincing Hope that it never actually left the safe. In the episode, what happens is she gives the letter to Lucas. And as she's leaving, with this indelicate letter that she wrote as a young girl woman that he had used as blackmail, his French wife shows up 
accuses him of cheating, and after Mrs. Th flees the house, she stabs Lucas to death. Listen, I'm not saying that Mrs. Th knew what was going to happen, but I feel like she made some quick calculations and be like, yeah, he can die. Yeah, and so you mentioned Holmes again playing chicken with geopolitics. This is a thing we saw last episode in Abbey Grange, where he shows up and says, I am convinced that you are a much-tried woman. If you will trust me and treat me as a friend, you may find that I will justify that trust. Like, I understand. I, I've pieced together enough. I'm pretty sure I know what happened. If you trust me, I can help you. And again, no, I, you know what? I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, okay, cool. When's your husband coming home? <laughs> and then he's just going to wait for him. And she finally caves and tells him everything. In the show, they do a great job of this. We see Holmes. He's like, are you sure it's not in the dispatch box? Mm -hmm. And Troy Hope goes, yes. And he goes, let's look, just to be safe. And he goes, all right, fine. So he and the Prime Minister turn their backs. And we see Holmes just open his jacket, pull out the letter, and discreetly walk around them out of frame for a second. And then as Trolley Hope finds the letter, we just see Holmes re-enter frame in the foreground, lighting his pipe. And it's like, what a great way of showing Holmes just doing the subtle drop. Right. And what a smart move not showing us him do the subtle drop. Because it was probably not going to look as subtle as we're supposed to think it is so off screen we're able to buy it but just he leaves the screen and right as the letter's on he comes back in the screen smoking his pipe like what a great visual right and i do like that holmes lets her you know not be in trouble for this mm -hmm. he, like he is clearly focused on making sure that like world peace happens as opposed to breaking up his marriage and all that yeah but he understands that she was being blackmailed yeah. into doing it. it wasn't like she was greedy or anything like that it was she was being blackmailed for some indelicate letter she wrote as a kid and Holmes doesn't care about that. Yeah. Peace is restored. He's not here. As I, I wrote in my notes, Holmes isn't here to blow up anybody's spot. Yeah. Like, he's not trying to get her in trouble. Like, they have the letter. No harm done. She did this under duress. He gets it. So he's going to just try to keep her out of it. And as long as he can get the letter back without having to out her, he will. Like, yeah. You mentioning without having to out her. Again, if you want to do a queer reading for this episode, that could be a thing that's in the letters that we never find out what their contents are. That's true too, yeah. Right? Because she specifically says that... An indiscreet letter written before my marriage. Foolish letter. The letter of an impulsive, loving girl. I are. meant no harm. Yet my husband would have thought it criminal. That could be a reason. I'll take it. Holmes ends the episode, like, jumping up in the air going, Way! <laughs> and it's weird. I mean, yeah, it is weird. I could also see the idea of, like, this was one of those mysteries where there was a ticking clock and some yeah. serious ramifications mm -hmm. if it didn't get solved. Right. But also, yeah, I just like, hey, hey, we'll put the quote in. Yeah. yeah. And you were totally allowed to go, well, hey, if you stop World War One, But it's just not, it's, it feels like no, a thanks odd... to <laughs> But it's an odd thing to do for this particular Sherlock Holmes iteration, but eh, whatever. It's a fun, weird bit. Let's uh, move into monographs. Um, there's a really fun bit. This is kind of a very good, like, lampshade hanging that I liked, where Watson's reading the paper about the death of Eduardo Lucas, and... Ballet out for the evening. They always are. Now that the housekeeper sleeps atop of the house, heard nothing. They never do. I wrote that down as well. That's it's such so a great good. line. so good. It's the kind of thing that might take an entire scene to establish, and here's just, like, four lines, and Holmes is kind of speedrunning through, like, the normal stuff. I want to talk really quickly, just as a monograph, about the way that we've gotten, like... Uh, at one point, they did a very slow sample of the opening theme as background music, and then later they did a like, almost full orchestra sample of the music. It was just a neat way of using the Granada theme song as background music right, which, while Holmes is Holmesing. 
Which I love. I think it's yeah. a really good... I mean, you've got a theme. You might as well like employ it for different mm-hmm. things. Yeah. You yeah. hear that Spider-Man? Um, yeah. What the fuck? Another little monograph. Yeah. Holmes is stressing because he's like, either this will be World War One while he tosses his like... <laughs> yes! He tosses his match from his pipe off to the side and he says, Now should I bring this to a successful conclusion? It will certainly represent the crowning glory of my career. Look to the side. He set the paper on fire. Oh! Yes. Yeah, there's like this chair cover news stories that's now on fire. Is this amazing comedy? Last monograph I have is that the Prime Minister kind of figures it out at the end. Yeah. Which I like, and I love that he comes out and... Come, there's more in this than meets the eye. Our Prime Minister, we too have our diplomatic secrets. And the, the Prime Minister smiles in this way that's like, okay, so it was her. Or something like that. Like, there's some level that we don't know about that involved the wife and you're protecting her. Like, I don't... It's just like he sussed out what actually probably happened or where the paper had been, etc. And isn't, again, going to blow up anybody's spot. It's like this respect that Holmes is protecting her or, or has gone to the lengths he has to kind of keep everybody's reputation intact. Right. Which I like because we, um, in the story, we don't really get, get as much in the episode. They talk about kind of the, this prime minister being this very, like, formidable person who I don't... I don't think he was a real prime minister in real life, was he? Lord Bellringer was not actually a prime minister. Yeah, although it could be like name change to protect the innocent or whatever, so. Sure. Yeah. Those are really the only monographs I have. Yeah. There this episode is so plot heavy that I didn't really have time to get into like the the smaller minutia. And there's sure it's not that much small minutia. Yeah, to like to be honest. Like they Yeah. There's a lot of like really good small bits. Like if if you want to watch like just one episode to like kind of get a sense for the for the show, especially for Hardwick, this is a really good episode for it. Like this is might be one of my favorites of the show so far. Sure, I would I would say if you want a feeling of the show just in general, mm. there are for me better episodes in the Burke era. Mm, yeah. I think for for to get a feel of Hardwick, definitely Second Stain mm-hmm. so far is the one that I would point you to. But yeah, this is a solid episode. I mean, they found good ways of getting around the fifty minute problem. Because uh, a lot of this is dialogue and reading newspapers, and so mm-hmm. they found a good way of of filling the time well. Mm-hmm. Well, if monographs are done, yeah. then we move on to Must Clash. Yes. And there's really only two contenders this week. Mm-hmm. There's Lord Bellringer and Sir Trelawney Hope. Right off the bat, Lord Bellringer, Harry Andrews, reminds me of Julian Glover, who was Walter Donovan in The Last Crusade. Um mm. Grand Maester in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, him. His voice, kind of the look of him, everything just made me think of that guy. Yeah. In the story, he's described as being this like very like gaunt man, but here he's like a, a like fairly full-figured person, which I think is a fine change. Like he, he still has the same kind of presence the story is trying mm-hmm. to describe, so it works out. Meanwhile, we have the Right Honorable Trelawney Hope, who has a very distinguished mustache. It looks yeah. like it's waxed with like a little bit of curl to it. I don't, for me, it just seems very granada mustache like it's kind of the 1800s distinguished gentleman mustache we've seen it before we'll see it again it looks almost like if the kind of mustache you buy at like spirit halloween for a thing to like stick into your lips was made into a real mustache and lord bellringer while not much better he does have these kind of sideburns that hint at connecting to the mustache Mm -hmm. i don't i think there's more going on for lord bellringer that puts him ahead for me. Right Honorable Trelawney Hope isn't bad. It's just the standard mustache that we see a lot on people of that time in the show. So I'm going to make a comparison that's going to be kind of out there, but it's fine. Lord Bellringer's mustache is the Gandalf the Grey to the King of Bohemia's Gandalf the White. 
it has the same kind of thing, but not quite to the same power level. I, I guess that's wild. <laughs> um, my vote's for Lord Bellringer. I think that he's got the better stash, yeah. as it turns out. But uh, not to disrespect or write honorable Trelawney Hope's mustache. It's just we've seen it before. We've seen it again. It's yeah. It's very bland. It is perfectly serviceable. It doesn't contribute to his overall look, and it's not wild enough to really stand out. Right. So so we're in agreement, Lord Bellringer? Yeah, Lord Bellringer was right. Then we pit Lord Bellringer against the messenger of the Abbey Grange. Uh, I mean, I think Lord Bellringer is still kind of giving me that like old salty sea dog vibe, but like with an actual mustache. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the messenger. Okay. Because it's so good. It's just this wild beard. It's kind of almost like a goat man beard. Oh yeah, you're right. I do love goat men. And that's why for me it has to be the messenger. Is like Lord Bellringer's mustache and hinted at sideburns are good. They're not enough for me. That goat man beard is just so great. That's fair. That's it's fair. such a look. He's got a bowler hat. I mean, it fills out this look of this messenger. I just, I have to go with the messenger. All right, sure. So the messenger reigns supreme. All right, then. The messenger is still sending us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with Musk Clash done and the messenger moving on, Jackson, do you have any plugs? Yep, as always, uh, gratuitous pausing. We are uh, wrapping up our sports bracket right now. I also have a podcast called The Equalizers where Madison Jones and I take movies that didn't get a sequel or prequel. And we give them to them. Uh, You can find us everywhere online by searching The Equalizers, and we spell it E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S, like in sequel. So next time, Sister Mind Megan Knoll returns as we see if Jackson Eflin can solve the Musgrave ritual. You didn't pick up the L of Lord, which is fine because we've already read it. Ord Bellringer is a fucking great like D&D name. Oh, wow. That is very good. Let me just write that down. <laughs> We're getting off topic a lot, which is re- sad. I mean, I assume this is getting cut. Oh, okay. Sure.